Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back, guys. DGS on KMOX. My in-studio guest is Kate Farmer. She is a uh, Washington University student. She uh, wrote an article for Reason.com called The Feds Give States Millions to Fix Homelessness, uh, but states are sending it back. And uh, either a friend or a fan uh, of Kate reached out to me uh, a couple weeks ago and said, hey, I'm a fan of the show and you need to know about this person in this article. And so I said, Andrew, go find Kate, bring her in. Here she is. Very nice to meet you. Great, Dave. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to you be need on the to, show. You need to put your nose to the grindstone here. You're really not doing much <laughs> as an undergrad. My, <laughs> my God. I was, Kids today, man. I was playing Frisbee and auditing home ec and things like that. And I mean, kind of give your resume. Yeah, brag. sure. I, well, this has been a long-term project I've been working on for a couple months. My background is writing on like health policy, but... I met with some of the homelessness organizations here uh, because I was interested in mental health efforts amongst homelessness in St. Louis. But quickly we unraveled this really interesting story about homelessness funding and how St. Louis is sending back millions in homelessness funding from the federal government. And since then, I've been meeting with these different homelessness leaders and uh, talking about what their needs are, how they're getting around these funding issues. And very recently, this project's gotten picked up by the Post-Dispatch. I'm now an investigative freelance reporter for them, mainly on homelessness. So digging into this project, um, it's it's something I kind of stumbled on, but I've been following the leads of since. That's so and- cool. Uh, I mean this sincerely. People like you are so important because people like us uh, can say, oh, they should just get a job. Oh, they should this. <laughs> oh, it's mental health. Oh, it's that. We Like, you know, opinions are, you know... Uh, but someone who actually looks into it, someone who actually does the research, someone who actually opens the book and doesn't just do headline research, um, mm-hmm. because I didn't know any of this stuff. Uh, so tell the story. Let let my audience know what's actually going on. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I had no idea any of this was going on. And in my research on mental health, homelessness, et cetera, before getting into this project, this kind of thing isn't really reported on. Um, and there's a lot of reporting on homelessness in St. Louis, but very little about the fact that we're sending millions back. Um, and so I started by meeting um, the main sort of protagonist in this story. This this first piece I've written on this is is Rich LaPlume, who is amazing, um, of St. Lazar House, which is a local nonprofit. 
that mainly specializes in homeless youth who struggle with uh, mental health issues or cognitive disabilities. I started talking to him about his programming, but he said, you know, the thing that's really holding us back is that we have this large debt on our name right now, $155,000. And it's a debt that's not a fault of our own. Um, The way that these organizations and organizations across St. Louis work is that they depend on federal funding from what is the Federal Housing and Urban Development Office or department. And uh, Congress apportions out approximately $3 billion a year to them, and then they distribute it out to states and cities. And so it's this sort of pipeline starting up and moving down. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that this is a long bureaucratic chain. And like any long bureaucratic chains, there's backlogging, there's confusion, and it, it relies on a smooth flow of funding and information in order to make this work. And St. Lazar's problem is that the St. Louis Office of the Federal HUD, Housing and Urban Development um, Department, is not getting their grant applications processed in time, their contracts processed in time. There's this clogging up. And like a lot of federal funding, it's a use it or lose it. And so um, if St. Louis um, organizations' grants aren't approved in time, they're not going to get their money. And so when they start their fiscal year, they might have this outstanding debt from the Mm -hmm. following year that never got paid for. And the St. Louis city has to send that back. And so I did some digging. I talked to a couple homelessness leaders. Um, Sean Newig of Horizon Housing is really wonderful at this. But they've been collecting the data on this for years now. And that's where that $2.7 million number came out. And that's just over a four-year period. So is this a human problem? Uh, Ed, you're supposed to be the one filling this out. Damn it, Ed, you're not doing it. (laughs) Is it a technology problem? Oh, Ed would love to do it, but his computer's broken. Or is it kind of both? Yeah, so we did some digging. And what homelessness leaders will tell you in St. Louis is that they're, and what truly is down on the records we have is they're applying for the grant money. They're doing the contracting. They're putting their blood, sweat, and tears into these organizations. And St. Louis homelessness organizations are highly ranked and highly successful, too, when you look at their their data and their numbers and the people they've saved. Um, but the problem is coming from just this bureaucratic backlogging. And um, I did a little more digging into this, too, and this is a, a national issue, too. Like a city like Los Angeles, for example, in the most recent four-year period measured, sent back $150 million for a population that during that same period burgeoned to 40,000 people. And and I found a lot of this through this Office of the Inspector General um, report done in 2022, so a federal report of why are they getting so much money back as city as homelessness you know, in urbanity has increased. And their number one finding was bureaucratic backlogging, like lack of clear instructions for the funding at every step of the way. Here in St. Louis, it's really getting caught up in the St. Louis HUD office. Um, but the kicker is that these organizations are putting in their effort and putting in as much money and work as they can, but they're getting held back and set up to fail sometimes. Mm. And so, Has HUD yeah. responded? Not yet. That's the problem here, too, is that a lot of these city bureaucracies are, are really a black box, and I've been trying to pick into it as much as I can. But at the end of the day, if we knew how they worked and how to fix it, then these orgs wouldn't be having that problem. So the thing going forward is I've heard some commentators in this compare HUD to like the DMV of housing, which is a terrible analogy, but a helpful analogy in that you can do everything right. You put in your applications in, you're hoping you get the result you need, but sometimes it's just up to chance. If you guys are just tuning in, we're talking to Kate Farmer. She's an undergrad at WashU struggling. And uh, she has written an article for Reason.com. Just so impressed. I'm just so sad that I wasted my life. Uh, no, 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 please. And, 
And, and basically, the federal government has millions of dollars accessible to cities like our own. Mm-hmm. And then it, uh, these groups put together the paperwork and the grants. And, and I've never been a part of that, but friends of mine have. And it's a gargantuan task. Yes. And then they do it. They give it to the local people. The local people are playing wiffle ball or something. And <laughs> then they, the money comes in. They send the money back. And we continue this this problem with the homelessness. Uh, Andrew, before I forget, you need to hook uh, Kate up with Cuomo and Brian Kilme. This should be a national story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wheels, I know you dug into this. I did. And, you know, there's something that stood out uh, in this, Kate, in, the, in reading the story. There are a couple of references to money that is either, quote, missing mm-hmm. or lost Yes. What uh, is that code? <laughs> because <laughs> it's not code. right. Like it's not sitting in a bag in the back of somebody's car. Like oh, we misplaced that. I mean, somebody did something with it, right? Yeah. It's it's interesting. We're this is getting into the the, the federal side of things too. So in that office of the inspector general audit that I read, um, they found that you know again over that four year period, um, half a billion dollars across the country was sent back to the federal government. That's about. <laughs> 10% of the funding from Congress to HUD for, this is called like the continuum of care sorts right. of funding. That's just the, a large term for the whole continuum of services that homeless individuals need. But half a billion dollars during that period. And of that around half a billion, it's like 454 million. Around 250 million of that was reclaimed by the federal government, leaving the other half undefined, unknown. The federal government doesn't know where it is. And this audit was... Did not attempt to guess where it's gone. Right. I guess it's, it's with these cities somewhere. Which I mean, is why it's got the vague terminology. But I mean, very vague. my interpretation, not yours, Kate, was somebody found a way to get access to it and it's theirs now. It's not, again, it's not in a bag in the back of a car. It's somewhere. Yeah. yeah. But the problem is we we depend on this funding is, is truly lifeblood funding. It's the number one funding source for homelessness organizations in St. Louis and beyond. And... First off, when you don't use all of your money and it gets sent back, the next year the federal government's going to send you less. So that is one yeah, difficult yeah. issue. You're and telling them we don't need it. Right, right. Also, when we, we lose $250 million over that four-year period, <laughs> we, we don't know. So funding is set to increase for HUD next year from Congress or this upcoming fiscal year. But the problem I'm seeing is that they've been funding more and more every single year. But homelessness has increased and money's getting sent back. And so I'm skeptical that even if places like St. Louis get more funding, I'm not confident that that funding's going to go where it needs to go and make the impact it needs. Money helps, but if we can't get the money to the people who need it, I'm worried that this increase in funding isn't isn't going to bring us any more mm. relief. Like in Los Angeles, it's been the case. So I, this this yeah. local office is it just a city office that's uh, you know everything is under Mayor Tashara Jones. I'm sure that she's not every day calling HUD and saying, "Hey, mm-hmm. you're not sending money back, are you?" But is it just a plain old everyday St. Louis office that's under the uh, the guidelines and under the the management of the administration. It's just a city department like anything else. It's as much as we know about it. This could I be mean, one of the biggest city wastes. Uh, not only the biggest amount of money, but the most important things. Yeah. Uh, Kate, what sorts of things could we be doing for our homeless population if we weren't sending these millions of dollars back? I mean, yeah, it's shocking. And these homelessness leaders are, are angry. And one beautiful thing about them, though, is that they coordinate together and that um, – I didn't just reach out to these people in isolation. I'd reach out to one and they'd say, you must talk to Shauna. You must talk to Samantha. You must talk to this. And I've gone to some of their like reunion events and they work together for survival. And so 
one interesting effort I've heard in St. Louis that the Post-Dispatch ran a piece on last year. Um, I, I've started writing with them now, so we would be a support of this, is that um, it's a complicated process. But to simplify, there's something called being a collaborative applicant with the city, which basically means an organization applies to handle HUD funding. And so they apply to handle, there's planning grant funding and then just standard HUD continuum of care funding. And last year, um, a St. Louis organization that's like a collaborative group of the very people who use the money, who spend it, who distribute it, business leaders, homelessness organization leaders, activists, they applied as a coalition to manage the funds themselves because the funds are for them. So to take it out of city hands who don't know as much as what they're doing and to put it into their hands, and they got approval for that. I think it's getting delayed a year right now. There's mm-hmm. some hold up on this end, but what these homelessness organization leaders want that I've talked to is they want to manage the funds themselves because they know best where it needs to go and which parts of the system of homelessness are, are hurting that need it. Yeah, I'd rather trust them. <laughs> yeah, and they, they want that power. Um, they want the funding to go to HUD and then to them to distribute. And so one way to kind of democratize this process is to have the people who've been working in this for decades, who put their life into it, who know it better than anyone else, who helped me develop the story to manage their own funding. So that that's one way forward uh, amidst a very difficult, complex process. <sighs> Kate, I'm wondering what what initially kind of laid this on your heart to want to look into this. And then have you been surprised or, you know, just come across any information that, that, yeah, surprised you when you were talking to these homeless leaders that kind of maybe made you think differently about the situation? I mean, so much. I this is the really beautiful thing about like local journalism that I've really gotten into that I'm excited to do more with the Post-Dispatch is that I, I truly just set out to write a profile piece on like mental illness and like nonprofits who work on mental illness and homelessness. But I learned pretty quickly that the best and most important stories come out by just seeking out these people and asking them, like, what do you want people to know? Or like, I'm a journalist. I have a connection to writing in this paper. What do you wish they would run? Um, and that's how the homelessness funding came up. I don't have a background in homelessness funding policy. Not many people do, which I think is why these blind spots come mm-hmm. out. But following their leads is really important, especially because I mean, you guys are a local radio station. You probably know this, but local journalism and local radio is not getting enough attention and love and heart poured into it. And stories like this in our own hometowns often slip our own gaze as we look to all these like increasingly nationalized stories and outlets. But this story of like your local government affects so much of your life yeah. and people increasingly are, are putting fewer sets of eyes on it. And I'm a student journalist who's still in college, and I found this story, and yeah. no one's writing on it. And there's hmm. probably and just, a lot more out there to find. Just to put a, a a face on it, because we are pretty much ground zero for homelessness. It, it, it moved a couple of blocks away right. when they shut yes. down the, the fire park. But there's mm-hmm. still a lot of it. And uh, Rachel and I take a little walk every day to get coffee before the show starts. And uh, yesterday we saw this gentleman who we've seen many times mm-hmm. uh, who's just walking around with a blanket on him. Yep. Clearly has some something going on mentally. Mm-hmm. This is the difference between him being in the place he should be and walking around asking for money covered in a blanket miserable. These are real yeah, people. It's are. not just a political left versus right, you know, election time. Let's get people whipped up into a frenzy. Let's get them pissed off about this or that. These are human beings. These are real people. Uh, I found out after my brother's death <clears throat> that he was homeless for about six months. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything. Yeah. So I'm like, that's mm-hmm. that's somebody's Keith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I Homelessness has affected my family, too. Um, and I, I was interested in mental health and homelessness because a, a loved one of mine um, developed a serious mental illness and that led him to homelessness and street living and all of that. And he became part of that population that's called chronically homeless. Um, 
a lot of times when we think about homelessness, we think about the visible populations like street encampments. They're about a third to 40 percent of the homeless population. Like your brother, it sounds like, was in that other two thirds that like enters a shelter, gets help, gets off their feet, gets back into into life. But there's a portion of individuals who are, are stuck in homelessness, who are chronic homelessness, who often suffer from another condition, like my family member. And those are the people who need these government resources, who need this funding, who need the support, and the people that it's really hard to help get them into to stability. And those are the people you see on the street encampments who are who need help. And those are the people where the funding is most obviously a need and those are the lives at risk because the longer they're out there the, the greater I've had the risk five gets. texts from friends listening to this thing yeah. this is incredible this is Stunning. amazing how do we not know this I, what do people do who do we call who do we complain to talk to the city I my power extends as far as like that web page does in a sense um, and it, it's a group effort that's like the thing about homelessness I keep coming back to is it's just beautiful how these organizations work together they support each other in my article, like Rich referred me to Shauna, who gave me this data, and he said she's my sister from another mister hmm. because he kept calling her his sister, and I thought she actually was. <laughs> they love each other that much, and I see why. I, I was invited to St. Lazar, one of the organizations, their 10-year anniversary, and I got to meet and hug and hear the stories of the people who've gone through the program and who've survived and who have independent living now, and it's amazing, and, and it, it really is like a community, and not just, yeah. it's not just a word for you know, we use community a lot as we throw it around, but it really is a community of people who love each other, who care. And we have all of the people working so hard out there to fix this. We can fix this, yeah. but they're being set up to fail. Well, anything we can do to help, we will do. All kidding aside, great work. As a fellow Washu Bear, well done. Uh, go Bears. <laughs> Thank you all so, so much. It's been what an amazing segment that was. Kate is doing such good work. And I'm here to tell you. That's the problem with St. Louis. This is the problem with St. Louis. The St. Louis system of government made up of human beings is dysfunctional. And it it has been since Slay was in office. It, it, there's just I don't know what it is about, about the city of St. Louis. And I'm not picking on Francis. He's a friend of mine. I'm just saying, like, it's not a Tashara Jones issue. This has been going on when I was uh, a lawyer and I was downtown and I would have to go within the courthouse to get a file. This would be an hour to 90 minutes. And the people were just back there just jacking around. It was all they got hired by their uncle because blah, 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 blah. Everyone, every attorney knows who's listening right now. You have to go out to the county. You got maybe an hour. You have to go to the city. You've got probably three. It just seems that. Everything in the city is discounted by about 60% when it comes to how well they do it. Last night I'm driving home, not to just get on a soapbox, but I am literally, you guys know this is true. I can't believe that guy who killed those women could get up to 70 miles an hour on Olive because it is an obstacle course of potholes and just big metal sheets. This is the problem. And these human beings who are responsible for doing a job who are getting paid to do a job. Maybe it's not the best job in the world. Maybe it's not the most fun job in the world. Maybe it's clerical. But when the federal government sends you $2.7 million over the past four years that you can use for your homeless problem and you don't do jack crap about it and it has to get sent back, you are ruining St. Louis. You, the St. Louis employees who aren't doing your job, and it's not all of them clearly, but the ones who aren't, shame on you. 
you are ruining everything for all of us. This And it's bigger than that, too, in this case. I mean, this is also the St. Louis Field Office of Housing and Urban Development. So if you look at their website, they have HUD.gov emails, which means they are a part of the federal government as well. So both local and federal government, but in particular the local chapter of this, are failing in some way, shape, or form. Well, Andrew, invite the head of both of those, or if there's only one, invite them on. Send them a copy of this interview. Send them a copy of what I'm saying right now. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back, guys. DGS 235. Pretty day out there. Cold, but uh, but sunny. So uh, Mitch McConnell announced earlier today that he's going to serve out the rest of his term, but he will not run again, and he will step down from being the uh, the leadership of the Republican Party and hand the torch off to someone else. Our buddy John Hancock joins us now. John, is this uh, seismic? I mean, is this really huge? Well, it's not unexpected. Uh, You know, McConnell's been having some health issues. He is 82 years old. Uh, You know, it's significant, though, because he's been a historically important Senate leader, the longest serving Republican, perhaps the longest serving party leader in the U.S. Senate's history. So he's a very substantial historical figure and certainly been at the forefront of a lot of controversies where he's given much praise and <laughs> taken on much consternation as well. So uh, so on the ground, like the nuts and bolts, uh, meat and potatoes of it, what happens once happened once it starts happening? So we'll have the elections in November. There'll be a new Senate. The Republicans have a shot at taking the Senate majority. Uh, made a little trickier with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, but still the the seats that are up tend to favor Republicans. So they'll either be, come January, electing a Senate minority leader or the Senate majority leader, depending on which party has a majority. I think you're probably looking at three potential candidates. There's always a chance for a dark horse. But the three other Republicans that are most likely to succeed McConnell are all named John, which is a good thing. Uh, you've got John Thune from South Dakota. Uh, there's John Barrasso, the senator from uh, Wyoming, I think. Uh, and then you've got John Cornyn from Texas. Uh, all Each of them might take a shot at this thing. Mm-hmm. Bar- of the three, Barrasso's probably more aligned with Donald Trump. And, you know, what's happened in the Senate, guys, is that McConnell had 
a virtual unanimous support for most of his tenure. And then some of these newer senators started coming in, particularly in the age of Trump. Uh, and they're personified really quite effectively by the two senators from Missouri, Josh Hawley and Eric Schmidt, both of whom have been publicly and often critical of Mitch McConnell. And so there's been a change in the culture of the Senate. There's no question about it. And this next leader of the Republicans is going to be um, significant in that regard. Let's, I'm curious to get your take, John, on like just how this plays moving forward. Because I saw, I don't know if you saw Josh Hawley's comments about uh, McConnell today, but I think called him the most hated man in politics. Was um, that a com- I'm not being No, funny. no, no. It, 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 it came or? across as criticism. I didn't see it. I just read it. So it came across as criticism. And I, and I think, John, it would make sense, right? Because certainly not going to be well-loved on the Democratic side. They're the opposition. You have the whole Supreme Court nominee thing with Obama. And then, obviously, the harder right people, the Trump Trump people, were not as thrilled with McConnell here recently. What do you make of, of the comments, but also that thought, that idea, that and where that may lead us when it comes to the next Congress, the next Senate setup? Yeah, well, the Senate is not quite where the House is as far as having, you know, the House with the conservative, the Freedom Caucus, whatever they, they are. They're really the tail wagging the dog right now in the House. Uh, the Senate's not quite built that way, although it's getting more like the House every passing month. But I don't think you're going to get the Senate equivalent of, say, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House. I, I think you're still going to have an institutionalist there that's going to lead the Republican effort. If they're not going to be a unanimous choice and they're going to have internal opposition, that's certain. But I think you're more likely to get a, a more stabilizing figure there. And I I mean, if, you, if I had to handicap it, I would say that um, John Thune of South Dakota uh, certainly, I think he'd be a great choice, and and I think he's got a a reasonably decent chance to prevail. And he's younger. John, is this the casket being lowered into the ground on Reagan Republicanism? <laughs> well, <laughs> if it's if it's not already there, uh, I mean, you look at these primary presidential results, and the Reagan wing of the party is getting on its best day thirty nine percent. So, I mean, I, I think those I think that ship has sailed and we are now a populist nationalist party for better or for worse. But that's what that's what the Republican Party is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any going back, you know, anytime soon. I, it's it's kind of you're going to if there's going to be a change of ideologic direction in the Republican Party, it's going to take a massive hollowing out of elected offices. I don't see that happening in the short term. So, John, last question. And if you're just joining us, obviously, you know, this is John Hancock. But if you haven't heard, Mitch McConnell is going to be stepping down at the end of his term. And there will be new a new minority leader, which could end up being a majority leader, depending on how things go in November. Um, so, as you said, Mitch McConnell, historic figure. Uh, my son, who's very liberal, always said, like, oh, yeah, I don't like Trump. And, oh, my God, do I hate Mitch McConnell? Uh, because he was so effective. And Nick would admit that as far as like getting judges in and such, he was very quiet, very under the radar, but he accomplished more than probably uh, most of the Republican presidents. Um, Go ahead and respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, inside that building, there has not been a better operator inside the Senate than Mitch McConnell that I have ever witnessed in my lifetime. And you'd have to go historically back probably to Lyndon Johnson as a U.S. senator. 
to find somebody that was as effective uh, over and over and over again as was McConnell. I, he did not often lose. And the, you mentioned the judiciary, probably his single highest priority and arguably his greatest historic legacy on the country, and not just the Supreme Court, but if you look up and down the federal bench, mm-hmm. uh, Mitch McConnell has left a profound mark that's going to be here for decades. So, John, if we look back at the the McConnell era as 90 percent, everyone was in line and he did a great job. If you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, you think he was terrible, but he did a great job. He kept everyone in line. And then with the advent of Trump and people like Hawley and Schmidt, it started to get a little difficult and kind of grinding the gears. What's coming up? Would you expect it to be not the kind of chaos we've seen with Kevin McCarthy in the House, but would you expect it to be a little more chaotic before it settles down? again yes the senate is definitely moving in the direction of where the house is Uh, they're not close to being there yet but there's no question that the days of party discipline and the congressional branch of government are gone and uh for the foreseeable future in the senate is uh as i say it's not going to be as chaotic as the house but it's definitely moving in that direction all right thank you johnny we appreciate it my pleasure, boys, girls. <laughs> Any thoughts? Just fascinating. Yeah. How fast it turns. Yes. You know, I mean, I, he, and it's not like he just passed away. It would be a little bit less classy if McConnell had passed away. And then you got comments from like Rick Scott and, and Holly, like we saw today, that are basically like, he's what's wrong. That's what, what's what uh, the, the second part of the quote from Holly relayed by Scott McFarland from CBS News was he's a symbol of everything that's wrong with Washington. So that that McConnell was. And it's interesting when you hear that compared to John Hancock saying he's one of the smoothest operators in D.C. getting things done for his voters, his party. But the point is the party has changed. Right. I mean, I I think you'd be crazy to deny that. Just like John said, looking at the primary election results, look at Dana Bash asked Nikki Haley last night, like, is your part of the party dying? Is it just completely shifting away? And even Nikki Haley said, yeah, kind of looks like it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how you deny that. I don't know how you deny that the old GOP is dead. Or at least on its way out. Yes. I don't see how it comes back. I could see something coming back that's non-MAGA, but I don't know how you get back to like a, a Reagan conservatism sort of thing. And maybe you shouldn't. Historically, I, I was going to say, is that normal like over generations? Because you had the Reagan run, but before that, the party was probably something else. something else, right? Yeah, good point. 250 DGS. Oh, Andrew, did you see uh, Elon Musk's latest creation? Maybe. Wheels is going to make you nuts as a driver of a sweet Camaro with a spoiler. (laughs) He has a new car that he says will go zero to 60. Now, just for frame of reference, zero to 60 in eight seconds is pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Six seconds is screaming. Mm -hmm. Four is a supercar less than one second. Mm Mm-hmm. He says that his car can go zero to 60 in less than one second, which I'm pretty sure would kill you. I think, yeah, I think uh, I think Rock and Roller Coaster, which is like the fastest in, in at Disney World, which is like the fastest anything can get from zero to 60 is like three seconds ish. Because it's like, like you said, it's like extremely 
dangerous to go too much faster than that? Yeah, the world record is 1.6 seconds. He really is like a 13-year-old boy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's saying he wants to break the world record, right? But you're not going to mass produce that. He says he is. <laughs> Good luck. Called, he says a lot of things, though. It's called the Tesla Roadster. Interesting. Have you guys seen? Maybe it does pro- look pretty cool, though. So the Cybertruck is out there now. I, I mean, I don't personally know anyone with a Cybertruck, but I keep seeing that Kim Kardashian went to Starbucks in her Cybertruck, and she goes to Starbucks. Like mad Lib. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think she started going to Starbucks a couple months ago as like some sort of brand partnership with them. Like yeah. their stock had fallen or something. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I'll go be photographed at Starbucks. Now she's going in the Cybertruck to do that. So I was wondering if that meant. You know, it's not doing so well if they need the Kardashian boost there. Want to hear something creepy? Mm-hmm. So, uh, first of all, there's now such thing as AI porn. And there's one guy who's pretty much behind it. And it started out that you could go to his site and you could give the prompt. Mm-hmm. Here's what I would like to see. Whoa. And the guy that owns AI porn who I'm going to guess is not like a Methodist, right? <laughs> right. You could probably get a mental picture. Said that it was so disturbing that he had to turn it into like a check the box kind of thing. Yeah. Like if you're ordering a Chipotle bowl and you want adobo chicken and extra cheese and some queso, but instead you're like llama, you know, it's mm-hmm. like... We are a weird species. It's almost like that stuff's not so great for your brain. Almost. And giving people unlimited options is, it's its just not going to end up. Th- I mean, that's been my, like, number one fear with AI is just, like, you can make porn of people you know. You can make porn of people you see on Facebook. You can have these kind of prompts and create anything you want. That's really destructive and that's really bad. And but we're not we know, meant to see stuff like this. But we know, right, that that's... That's like five years. If that. Five, yeah. I mean, I, th- uh, I think they can do it now. Yeah, I think they can. If, if you can say make a woolly mammoth with wispy, you know, Arctic and a bunch of pine trees, you can make whatever you yeah. want porn-wise. But I'm talking like not accepted, but mainstream. Mm-hmm. Boy, you know, that is so such an interesting dark territory with all the things that are illegal to do yeah. in real life. Yeah. How does that apply to something that's not real? Mm-hmm. And something you own. That if you have a program, you know, chat porn GPT, and no one has access to it, right? Yeah, I saw a, a story last week about this young lady who was alerted by someone she knew that there was a naked photo of her on Reddit. And she went and she checked it out. And sure enough, there she was. Problem was, she never posed for this photo. She had a bikini picture up on Instagram, and then AI was able to digitally make her look like she was naked. They changed the color of her hair, which doesn't help anything, but it's like, oh, okay, great. That's uh, just something. It's the same thing that happened at that high school in New Jersey. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Want to hear something interesting about Reddit? They've not made a dollar in 20 years. Really? Yeah. The guy who owns it is married, married to uh, Serena Williams. Serena Williams. Gazillionaire. Mm -hmm. They've never made a profit. Really? I mean, they don't. It's that's yeah. They don't make a, a a product really, right? And there's some ads on Reddit, but there's not that many ads on Reddit, and that probably just pays for like operating costs and stuff. 
And there's not like there's not uh, really transactions you can buy really on. on so what is that? Is just the valuation of the stock is so high? <laughs> you got me. When when my buddy Scott and I uh, owned Fox Pop, we had dinner last night. Hey Scott, when we owned Fox Pop, we worked for about six years. Uh, losing money, losing money, Scott's money. Um, and then we broke even, and then we turned to profit. And then we turned more profit. Then we turned a little more profit. And we got a deal with Schnook. So we got a deal with Walmart. And we were in three cities in Walmart. And so then we started doing what most people do. We started looking for someone to pay us millions of dollars to buy this great idea that we had, right? And one of the things that the uh, the equity guys told us is, we would really like to see you losing money and losing a lot of money. And that, like, and, and yeah. you know, I'm like Opie in there. I'm like, what? Yeah, we'd like to see you losing more money. That 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 intrigues us more for an investment. Hmm. So weird. So they can turn it around. I guess, like, buy low and then in fix it. I don't know. That would be my guess, right? Well, I, I don't know why I even said that. I'm an idiot. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything. You don't even know the size of a prairie vole. Yeah, I don't know anything. And I mean, in you're, fact, like, you're willing to lie about your knowledge. I don't like, understand. I, I bet that's probably what it is. <laughs> the whole money thing is all crazy, too. Like, too many people have jobs. That's bad. Too much money out there. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly 